Hey everybody, welcome back to The Overrun. I'm Dan Schwester and I have a very special guest with me, um, someone who has served in the trenches as a paramedic and is still a licensed paramedic to this day. Um, also a educator, a lifelong educator, thought leader, former director of a state uh, EMS regulatory agency. Uh, you might have seen him on social media, you might have followed some pages that follow him very closely. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, we are happy to have Mr. Scott Phelps on with us. So, Scott, welcome to The Overrun. Thank you for having me tonight. We've been talking about this literally for years, haven't we? <laughs> yeah, this has been a couple years in the making. Uh, it was a lot of uh, back and forth, and, uh, you know, finally things work out, right? <laughs> you know, time passes and things change, right? <laughs> yeah, that's true. That's true. Um, one of the things I, you know, we've had some really interesting discussions over the, over the past at conferences and, you know, being around in the EMS world in New Jersey. Um, a couple of things that I, that, you know, I thought we would touch on. Um, one of the things is, you know, people don't, I, I think some people don't realize that you are a practicing paramedic and have been for a very long time. So take us through, where did you get the start in this? What, where did you get the idea that this was something you wanted to do and, you know, how did it go from there? I have the most pathetic story ever. Um, I was walking along, I was 15 years old, and uh, a guy named Steve Spilarek rode by me on his moped in his rescue squad jacket, and it looked cool. And I said, okay. how do I do that? Okay, and just started as a volunteer, going through the whole thing? Started as a volunteer on Finder and Rescue Squad, got my eight points, uh, went, took, got my EMT card, uh, which I couldn't actually have before I turned 16. Um, and then I started a medic program when I was 18, and I've been a paramedic since uh, just about when I turned 19, and now I'm 52, so that's 33 years. So I could give narcotics before I could have a beer. Wow. That's, uh, that's pretty interesting. Um, you also did some time in New York City, right? Uh, most of my time was in New York City. I, I became a paramedic in Jersey City, and I worked for Mercer County Lakeville, and I think I was making $22,000 a year, and we would bring our trauma patients to St. Vincent's, where they were making $38,000 a year, and that's about two miles from, from Jersey City, so I was like well, driving two more miles to make you know, a 70% jump in salary seemed like a good deal at the time, and it turned out it was. So, so that was just for the record. That was that was St. Vincent's Hospital down in Lower Manhattan in Greenwich Village area. Greenwich. Um, yeah. And what what a, what area? What period of time is this? Oh, it was the '80s. So it was right um, when AIDS was becoming a really big issue. Like, if you ever seen like and the band played on, where like they have yeah. the stretchers lined up in the hallways. That was my life. I was a paramedic in Greenwich Village in Chelsea, and. Uh, there's a picture out there that I, I have. It's probably on, you can get it up on Facebook somewhere with me and a, a friend of mine, Ken Carger, wearing our Act Up shirts for a gay pride day. Oh, wow. So, uh, you know, we were part of the community. We were caring for the community. We were, they were, we were there every day. And it was just a, uh, a very weird time where people, you know, 20 year olds, 30 year olds, 40 year olds were, were dying and there was nothing to be done for them. Um, and I think that we've sort of forgotten about a lot of that. Um, you know, people like Larry Kramer and ACT UP and, and you know, there's a lot of, uh, there was a lot of militancy at the time because there was literally nothing you could do for these guys 
for five, six, seven years until AZT first uh, became widely available. But that changed everything in, in the West Village. Mm. Uh, and uh, now things are much different. And, you know, it, it's, it's hard to see people forget that. But it was a, a massacre of a whole generation of people. Yeah, I, I don't think people really, I think nowadays, I think that the, the generations don't understand really the impact of that and, and how scary it was, not just to civilians, but to, you know, clinicians in the field that, you know, we didn't, we didn't know what it was. We didn't know how it was, how you caught it. We didn't know what would happen. Um, and there were clinicians that were lost to this epidemic, you know. Yeah, Bellevue, Tracy. Okay. Uh, the... Uh, it was a listen. Whether it's multi-drug resistant tuberculosis, or it's hepatitis, or it's HIV, um, being a paramedic is always going to have some degree of risk to it. And thank God, uh, fewer people died, fewer clinicians uh, died from HIV than you would have expected. Um, but they've never actually been able to accurately measure the number of people who ended up with hepatitis C, which probably killed a lot more than HIV did. So it, was it stressful? I mean, like, cause I'm, I'm thinking this, we're, we're in the middle of a COVID-19 thing and you know, the, this, this pandemic has hit uh, quite a few EMS providers. Um, 15 and, in New Jersey. Well, yeah. And, and that's just one state. And, yeah. um, you know, there is a, there's a stress, there's a palpable tension when people go to work now. Um, and I don't know how that's going to resolve. Um, did you, did you kind of see a parallel to that or? Um, I, I think it perhaps was a little different. Actually, no, I don't think it was different. Uh, I think it was different in that I worked for the largest Catholic hospital in America, um, which had been in Greenwich Village for, at the time, 130 years. Um, so their mission was pretty well defined. Um, so that was what we did. The, the difference, though, is maybe not at the very beginning, but by the mid to late 80s, we had appropriate uh, protective equipment and we, and we knew what the risks were. Um, I, I don't understand, well, I don't understand how any um, EMS clinician could be functioning for the past two months without an appropriate N95 respirator, a gown and goggles on every assignment. And I mean, I'm pretty militant about this, that it do, if you don't have an N95, you shouldn't be responding to jobs. Okay. And, that, and that's just too bad. Um, if your employer doesn't see fit, you know, if your employer didn't put gas in the ambulance, you wouldn't be putting gas in the ambulance. You could go run jobs. That's a fair point. So, so why would you go out without the appropriate PPE? Because they didn't see fit to provide it for you. That's, I can't argue that. I, I, I think some of the stuff that's happened with some people, and you know, some of us have been lucky enough to work in places where it's been a priority, uh, but not everybody. And it seems that in EMS, um, it seems to me that the lowest on the food chain, so to speak, the non, the non-emergent EMTs, the MAV operators, um, mm. they've been kind of left to be cannon fodder for this. Um, you know, I hate to say that, but it just seems like they, it, 
it's I see that. You know what I mean? So how come they're not more militant? How come they think so little of themselves and they're not more militant that we're not gonna do this job if we're not protected? It's a great question. Let's uh let's see if we can get into it. Um but circling back, so you've got a lot of history here. You work for a hospital that a rich history. Uh, it's not there anymore. I, I don't even know what's there anymore. Is it like condos or something? Condos. When the hospital has closed, you can assume there will be condos. <laughs> but it, 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 it used, yeah, it used to be a landmark in the village, and um, you know, it was uh, it was really kind of shocking when it closed. Not only that, because uh, in New York City, um, the hospitals actually augment um, the city EMS, right? One third of all 911 calls in New York City are handled by the hospital-based paramedic units and EMT ambulances. And that's never mentioned by the fire department. Yeah, so, n- no, it's it's not. And if you see on EMS Week, you know, their, their stuff, it's always a firefighter. It's always, you know, it's very rarely an EMS clinician. Uh, but there's nothing about, like, in, you'll be in the city and you can see, you know, Mount Sinai's got a truck and um, New York Presby's got trucks and they wear white pants, but we're going to, we're not going into that. Um, you know, I love my white pants. I, I don't know how you get through a shift like that, but we'll, we'll get into that. That's how you, you know, that's how you keep, if you have white pants on, you're going to keep everything clean and that's how you're going to get to the shift. Okay. Fair point. Very clean. So one of the things that we've talked about in the past and you, you and I've had a few discussions on this and there's some that you sponsor a page on Facebook called New Jersey ambulance history. Um, it's pretty cool. Everybody should check it out. Um, it's a lot of old stuff. And the really interesting thing that I got from it is that EMS in various forms or whatever it was back in the early 20th century is a lot is it's a lot further back than what we think. We think this all started with the white paper in the 60s, Roy and John getting into squad 51 and that's where it started. That's not necessarily true, is it? No, no. In fact, you can tell who has read the white paper and who hasn't read the white paper but if they think it's important. Because the white paper has almost nothing in it about EMS. It has literally, I think, a paragraph about EMS. Okay. Uh, and that's actually, like, you. I just know most people have never even seen the white paper or actually read it. But it's mostly about, you know, rural highway design. And there's a little bit about EMS. There was actually a lot of parallel federal efforts at the time that actually were way more important, but no one talks about them. But, yeah, in New Jersey, there had been ambulances since 1874. And even by 1906, there was more than 20 hospitals in New Jersey that had ambulances. So they were staffed usually with a driver and an intern, um, and they provided medical care. And and over time, um, they grew to cover more and more of the state. Um, One interesting thing is that um, volunteer ambulances didn't appear for the first 50 years. So it wasn't until the early 1920s when you started having volunteer ambulances. And I just was looking at this today. Most people think that, um, well, Belmar makes the most noise about it, about them being the first. But you'll never see them actually say they were the first volunteer ambulance because people from South Jersey know that Palmyra had an ambulance as early as 1922. However, I was looking just today and I found that Freehold actually had a volunteer ambulance that started in 1920. Um, so where, did, Freehold, 
where do you find this stuff? You know, I have a I have a newspapers.com account and they okay. have a bunch of New Jersey newspapers that go back a hundred and some years. So I search by year in okay. New Jersey for all the ambulance articles and then I go through them like a psycho and cut and paste them. And that's what I post up, you know, every couple of days in the New Jersey ambulance history page. Um, that's actually, you know, finding this stuff out, documenting the history is important because people don't know it. And, you know, you saw even this past week, people talking about how EMS just started in the 60s. And the 60s is literally 85 years after the first ambulances started in our state. Yeah, I'm guilty of that too because I, I I frequently say on the show, um, you know, oh, we're we're in infancy, we're we're a zygote, we don't really know, we haven't developed the profession, but we've also never embraced this early history. You know, the fire service did it. Um, you know, they'll tell you Ben Franklin was you know one of the first firemen in the right. in the country, and we've got you know, and just think about how how mind blowing this is. You had hospital-based ambulances responding with a driver who may have been a technician, may have had a first aid training or mm -hmm. something, and an intern, a physician. Yes. So we had physician-based response ambulances back almost 100 years ago. Not back almost 100 years ago, back almost 150 years ago. 1874 is... A hundred and what? Hundred and twenty? Hundred and sixteen years okay. ago? Yeah, yeah. So, hundred. I'm sorry. Hundred and forty-four. Hundred and forty-six years ago. We're almost at hundred and fifty. So, when you look at when the New York City Fire Department was founded, out of the volunteer fire companies, that was about three or four years before the first ambulance uh, appeared in New York City out of Bellevue. Um, the second ambulance in New York City was out of New York Hospital. And uh, those folks in the white pants are still providing service today. Oh, so wow. we are as old as the career fire service. Um, in fact, if you go around New Jersey, I think you'll find that uh, no matter where you go in New Jersey, we're probably contemporaneous with the foundation of the career fire service. That's something that's never taught. And that's something that's never taught in any MT class or a paramedic class, I can guarantee you. And every fire Every fire service academy, every police academy, you learn the history. Yeah, it, it's the problem is is that we don't focus. All you hear is excuses, and you know, like, wait, they didn't do the same things the paramedics do today. Well, the paramedics today don't do the same thing they did ten years ago, let alone forty or fifty years ago, when paramedics started in New Jersey fifty years ago. Um, let alone, you know, but if you go back to the 1870s, to the 1880s, they were doing cricothyrotomies. They were doing um, a variety, you know, providing antidotes for poisoning, providing morphine. They were doing stuff that we still do similar stuff, if not the same stuff today. Most likely even the same stuff that they probably learned on the battlefield. Yeah, maybe even the same equipment sometimes, right? Probably. <laughs> <laughs> It's back in a training room somewhere, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, that is, see, this is something, why don't we teach this? Why don't we recognize our heritage and why Why do you think as a profession we don't embrace this stuff? Because we don't. We absolutely don't. There's a great book called The Ambulance by Ryan Corbett, Corbett Bell. Um, 
And that's probably the best written book about the early history of, um, of ambulances. And there's a book that was written by Jim Page called The Paramedics, which is available at archive.org um, for free. You can borrow it, which covers the first 10 years of paramedic care, which talks about the mobile coronary care unit out of Martland Hospital in Newark, which followed close on the heels of St. Vincent's mobile coronary care unit and Staten Island Hospital's mobile coronary care unit, which were the first three in the United States um, after Pantridge uh, formed the mobile care coronary care unit in Belfast. In fact, Pantridge came to, to New York and New Jersey and spent time at all three hospitals uh, to help foster the development of their mobile coronary care units. I had I had heard I, I had heard that we had started that paramedicine, especially in this area where nationwide, had started as you know heart attack care, like um, it did. You know, uh, heartmobiles. Uh, you see that all the time. Mobile coronary care units, and that was I, I think that wasn't that the initial thrust of these early units. It was because what happened. It, it wasn't that many years before that, maybe sixty four, sixty five, when. The whole idea of a specialized coronary care unit was, was conceived, and the cardiologists realized that two-thirds of their patients were dying before they got to the hospital, and one-third of their patients were dying before they got from the emergency department to the coronary care unit. So they quickly realized that if they could extend their care to the out-of-hospital setting, they could actually save a lot of lives, and that's the reason why they put, tried to push it outside. In fact. The early mobile coronary care units um, in, in New, Newark, for example, they actually uh, the, the attending and the resident would actually leave the mobile the coronary care unit, race downstairs to meet the ambulance, to then go out in the field at first, and they eventually changed that so it was a intern and a nurse, um, and then in 1974, with Newark sort of you know spiraling downhill a little bit. Um, Martland actually gave the entire program to the fire department at the time and trained the um, firefighters to become cardiac technicians. And they were the first non-physician out of hospital advanced life support in the state. A year before the Overlook medics who were being trained at uh, CMDNJ actually came out and started almost a year later. But nobody's heard of the Newark guys because in 1975, there was huge budget cuts, and they were all laid off. Really? Wow. Yeah. So Newark didn't have ALS, I think, for another eight years. No, five years. Um, until um, University Hospital, then CMDNJ, picked up the paramedic program again. Wow. But, but there were 15 Newark Fire Department cardiac technicians who provided the first paramedic care for at least a year before Overlook started. That's that's interesting. I don't think anybody's ever heard that. I think very few people know that, especially yeah. who are in the field right now. Um, and so that led into basically bec people becoming paramedics, at, at least in this state. Roy and Johnny, they, they were a huge influence. And I think it's easy to um, sell short the uh, importance of emergency um, except if you if you read Jim, Jim Page's book, The Paramedics, once again, it's available at archive.org. You can borrow it for free, electronic version. Um, you'll see that across the country, um, 
when paramedic programs started, they started because somebody had seen emergency on TV and wanted the same thing in their community. And that's, that's a huge influence. And, you know, Jim Page, after being involved with the start of emergency, because he was a fire chief there, right. um, when, he re- when he retired um, and was in the, before he started GEMS, he ran the Advanced Coronary Treatment Foundation, which was one of the other big drivers of paramedic programs in the country. The, the ACT Foundation actually fostered, provided lots of information about how to start a paramedic program, what paramedics could do. Um, if you go on YouTube and you search, you can find some of their videos about early paramedic care. And if the ACT Foundation was based originally in Somerville, and later on, I think in Branch, not Branchburg. Um, although Jim Page was was fundamental in the, the show Emergency, I think a lot of people don't know that after he retired from the Los Angeles County Fire Department, he actually moved to New Jersey and started the Advanced Coronary Treatment Foundation out of Somerville, New Jersey. And the ACT Foundation was responsible for promoting the idea of paramedics across the country. So through a combination of seeing it on TV every Saturday night, uh, watching Emergency, and information from the ACT Foundation about how to actually start a paramedic program and what it required, that really was the genesis of paramedic care in the United States. And New Jersey has a strong connection to it. Yeah, I, it's interesting because, you know, I talk about emergency now. And people are like, you know, but I, I was that little kid. You know, I I, had, I used to borrow the Jim Page book from the library. Uh, it had some really re- amazing pictures, like uh, like some of the first cardiac monitors were in milk crates. Um, yeah. And, you know, the different, the, the whole length and breadth of what they actually were trying to do. And, you know, they, they were literally making it up as they went along. It was really, really interesting. Um, and the show was just huge. I mean, it was, you know, when you were a kid like that, I mean, that was just, that was just the thing, you know, I mean, to this day, I mean, I watched Starsky and Hutch. I was much more a Starsky and Hutch fan than emergency, but I didn't become a cop I became a paramedic. So I, I guess emergency had a stronger, uh, uh, subliminal influence on me. Yeah. And you know, it's funny because we talk about, and this is something that people like to, you know, to, to talk about. There's been a number of TV shows that, um, for the most part have tried to recapture the magic, so to speak. Mm. Um, and they all fail. Um, one of the things that I really find interesting is that when you watch these modern kind of era shows that try to catch up, um, you know, they just don't, ca- they just don't have it. Um, you know, I think the thing that everybody got with, with, you know, Johnny and Roy was, you know, first of all, the mundaneness of some of their calls, um, yeah. you know, um, you know, people getting their like toes stuck in a bathtub. Um, that was a squad call on one of the shows. Um, you know, you know, just doing things like that. Um, and just the professionalism, you know, I don't, I think that's, what's lost on a lot of people was that, you know, they didn't lose their temper. They didn't think that, you know, you never saw them getting into the truck and be like, Oh, this is a bullshit call. We don't have time for this crap. Um, you know, you mm. never saw them to the ambulance guys. Do you really need us? You know, it was like, <laughs> <laughs> you know what I mean though? And, and I think, you know, that the modern shows kind of, they, they, they always seem like they want to jazz it up. They want to make it, 
you know, and they, they, you know, they don't make it realistic. That was the other thing. The show was realistic. Um, well, let me just throw in one thing. Okay. Okay. So just in case you think that the fire department taking all the credit for doing the work that, you know, the paramedics do is new. Keep in mind that in that very first paramedic class at Daniel Freeman hospital, half of the class were from the ambulance, private ambulance company. So, those guys who show up who just basically carried the stretcher for Roy and Johnny in real life, they were paramedics too. Oh, and no one's to remember that. That's a, again, something I never knew as a kid. You know, I mean, I, I watched the, I've watched every episode of that show. I, I was religious. It was the one thing I was allowed to stay up late on Saturday nights and watch, um, you know, and, you know, I, I'm old enough, like I'm the old guy on the show. So, you know, they, they love to point out that, you know, I am the only one who's probably seen that in first run. I used to have the toy medical kits. I had all the You're stuff. the only one who's given Bertillium and Isoprel and learns how to do uh, pericardiosynthesis. And, yeah, no, old- no, I know. I had just, I came in just when the Life Pack 10s were in. I okay. never got to because use it. I never got to use a Life Pack Five. Oh, geez, you're a young guy then. Come on, and I mean, uh, probably used a Life Pack Five for five <laughs> years at least, right? No, I never used a five. It was my first monitor was a ten. And you got screwed then because the ten was a much shittier monitor than a five. The five you could split; it was much lighter. Um, the ten was a brick. Oh God. <laughs> That's awesome. But yeah, I do remember Bertillium. I, that was my first ACLS class. Um, but, you know, again, that's that's stuff we don't share. You know, that there's a rich tradition of this isn't a profession that's just fire guys or this or hospital based guys or privates mm-hmm. or, you know, there's it's a, it's almost like it's it, it's like a like a song like there's there's everybody's got their different part to play and everybody's been playing along you know like it's about the medicine not who you work for and it doesn't like there are great fire service ems systems and there are horrible fire service ems systems um i would i would agree with that and there's probably great there's probably great and poor in every in every it doesn't matter what the shirt says yeah it matters um you know it's about the medicine and that's the really important part that, you know, part of the problem, part of the problem in viewing things from a um, New York metro area, New York Philly metro area perspective is that um, if you go to the West Coast, the fire service always provided EMS. Well, not always, because in San Francisco, it was the Department of Health up until the 90s. And in Los Angeles, it was the police department up until... 1970. So whenever you watch emergency, you need to keep in your head that in, in the city of Los Angeles, it was the city of Los Angeles police department ambulances up until they were, they were eventually transferred to the fire department in 1970. But just recently, this past week, the, the, EMS, the National EMS Museum put out a, a presentation of 50 years of EMS in California they didn't mention the Los Angeles Police Department um, EMS. Uh, they start off by talking about Los Angeles City Fire and Los Angeles County Fire, where literally till 1970, um, in most parts of Los Angeles, that was a police department function. And the emergency rooms were the police department receiving hospitals. So literally, it was almost all police department. 
until it was transferred to the fire department. Unbelievable. I mean, this yeah. is, and, and again, stuff that we don't share with our students, stuff that we don't put out there um, so that they understand a heritage of where they came from or what they've done or what they're just the things that the, the predece- our predecessors have done to contribute to where we are right now. Like I, I look at things now and I'm like, you know, wow, we get to do a lot of cool stuff. I, I get to do things that 10 years ago, nobody would even consider letting a medic do. 15 sure. years ago. And it's going to continue. The generation that follows me is going to be far more ahead. You know, we're already, the day's going to come. You're going to see ultrasound. We're going to see blood. We're going to see all these groundbreaking well, things in the field. Ultrasound and blood in New Jersey. So. There, there is in certain areas with certain, <laughs> <laughs> certain units. Um, but again, that's something that's going to trickle down to that new generation. And I don't think that we share as a as a you know as a mission. We don't share where they came from or what the people before them did to get them to that point. But this is also part of the problem we were discussing before we started. That there are so many things in people's heads, and it's not it's us. It's not everybody else necessarily. Um, there's a general belief that. Unlike nurses, paramedics are incapable of learning new things on the job and taking on new roles, which is completely ridiculous. You know, nursing is structured around being a generalist and then you specialize in your job. But there's absolutely no reason why a paramedic couldn't learn how to do something completely different um, if they were put into that role. But you don't hear paramedics talking about, uh, of course, a paramedic can learn to do X, Y, Z. Um, you hear them complaining about this is where we've been blocked, where we've been, you know, where there's some belief that there's some barrier to us doing it. And the truth is, if we believed we could do it and we advocated for it, that would, that's how you get things to change. Not just saying, oh, there's nothing that can be done because there's a wall, uh, that says we can't do that. Um, you have to be more you know, if you believe you can do it and you have, you know, a thousand other colleagues who believe you can do it and you press the right buttons by going through the right channels, you're going to be able to do it. Yeah, that's an interesting point. I, I, I hear that a lot. You know, you hear that at shift change in the squad rooms or when everybody's, you know, restocking is this this kind of idea that I'm, I'm quote unquote, just a medic, just an EMT, uh, that you don't have a stake in medicine and that that's all you're ever going to be. Um well, the important part here is to remember that paramedics have more education than the, than the minimum required for nurses. The, the average paramedic program in America is 48 credits. The average nursing program is 42 credits. The More than 90% of the paramedic programs in the country are longer than the nursing program at the same institution. Paramedics are not a bunch of dummies. They are just, they've allowed themselves to be pigeonholed for no reason other than they've got this weird set of things in their head. We have to get them away from it, thinking about. That's going to blow people's minds. Um, and, and let's, let's go with this. So we're, we're, so again, like I said, we, we did a post last week. We, you know, EMS week was last week. 
Um, you know, it was free food, free trinkets, tchotchkes, water bottles, whatever you want to call it. I mean, hey, all, fun. All, stuff re- all stuff you really needed, right? Yeah, I mean, it, it really was. But, you know, here's the thing. Like, <laughs> law enforcement has National Night Out, and they have their own things. Fire Department has Fire Prevention Week, and they do their things. And if you notice, they 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 flipped it on their on its they've kind of the flip side of what we do um for them it's public education public outreach educating about the mission and it's about telling people why they're important and why you need to have this in your community and why the police are so important and why you need the fire service when let's be honest a lot of times in a lot of towns across the country most of the times nothing burns and you're going to see you know but nobody's ever going to talk about closing a firehouse. And when you do talk about closing a firehouse, there's hue and cry, gnashing of teeth. People will rise to the defense of the firefighters. No one ever has – I've never heard anybody complain about a medic unit being taken off the road. Because they don't know, first of all. Um, you know, and, that, the- and, that, and that's getting back to my point is – why are we why are we satisfied with this? We we have this again, this culture of where did we go wrong that, you know, it's all about just getting for a, a free hamburger and, you know, a free water bottle and a pair of scissors and then nothing for another year. You know, part of the problem is it's very hard. So we're in an era of um enhanced patient privacy. So it's harder, not hard, but harder to tell our story um, because we worry about patient confidentiality. However, there's lots of ways to tell our story without naming Bob Smith, per se. Um, And even in the institutions, you know, New Jersey happens to be the state. New New York and New Jersey, the states I'm most familiar with, um, and I've worked in hospital systems in both states for 30 years, and most of the people in the hospital don't really understand what the paramedics do. Even the ED nurses might know that our guys are paramedics and the city guys are not, but that's maybe as far as it goes. Um, I, would you believe I still get nurses at receiving hospitals in 2020 in our state, in our jurisdiction, that still don't know that we can give X medications or we can, you know, vascular access, airway management. It, I find that staggering. I, I think for EMS week every day for the, for the past week, um, every hospital that runs paramedics um, should have had a, a display set up in the lobby where you're just showing them the medics doing crikes and um, interpreting electrocardiograms and, 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 Provide and showing people the care you can provide because even people in the hospital don't know what you can do. Um, and you know, when I was on a volunteer squad back when I was a teenager, we would go once a month to the, to the supermarket to take blood pressures, mm-hmm. which is a socially useful thing. You could do it while you're available. Um, there's no reason why we're not doing stuff like that now. And, you know, you have someone, you take their blood pressure, and then you explain to them what the paramedics can actually do. And you show them the cardiac monitor. And you show them all the cool toys we have. Mm-hmm. But, you know, if we don't sell ourselves, you don't expect anybody else to sell us. Yeah, I, I think you're right. And I think that's where we need to change. Um, 
you know, I, I, like I said, I don't need another water bottle. I don't, I certainly don't need another bag of jelly beans or potato Oops. chips or and that, that was the other thing that got me was, you know, invariably all of the stuff that we got, all the food was absolutely unhealthy. And we've got a huge provider health issue. We've got a huge obesity issue in the, in the profession. Um, we've got a huge stress per level and, you know, we're not helping anything with this. So how come nobody turned around and said, rather than give me a jelly bean or a water bottle, here, sign this letter to your assemblyman saying that we should be in the PERS retirement system. It's a good point. And, you know, this is the problem. Like, they give you a, a phone charger or a water bottle or a dinner or whatever, and it's all very nice, and they mean, they mean well with it, but I'd much rather have every paramedic and EMT uh, in the state be in a, a PERS retirement system so they actually can you know, retire before they're 70. Yeah. Um, you know, for the, for the audience, PERS is public employees retirement system. Um, most states have something similar. Um, it's just a, for the vast majority of EMS clinicians, uh, in our states, at least, um, they're, they're not public employees. They're not considered uh, part of the essential services, so to speak. Um, and they don't get retirement benefits beyond the 401k or a 403b or whatever you might have, um, as opposed to some other agencies or the police or firefighters that not only have a pension for when they retire, but also if they suffer a career-ending injury. And most yeah. most EMS clinicians who get injured on the job do not get to retire with uh, at least a modicum of security. Would, would you agree with that? I would agree if they don't plan ahead. I think you can plan ahead. I think that you should plan ahead. I think that if you're working in a clinical setting, you should have disability insurance and you should be tithing to your 401k, um, if not more. Um, but I think people get tied up and, you know, it's very easy if you don't have someone who's badgering you when you're 25 to maximize your contributions, you don't do it. And then you pay the price. Fair, fair enough. Um, you know, some of this is on us. Um, yeah. And some of this is on the senior members who are bringing up this younger generation that we need to sit and talk to them about this stuff. Um, you know, but but getting back to EMS week, you know, these are the things that, you know, you know, I put I put something out. I was like, hey, I'd really like to see this. I'd like to see us, you know, not have to worry about people getting the proper PPE. Um, I'd like to have, you know, if it, someone dies in the line of duty, that their family is not bankrupt, um, that, you know, the, just small things like let's go out into the public and let's take EMS weekend and put a truck in the mall and, you know, teach CPR or talk about bleeding control. And we, we just don't do it. And I think and, it's because there's a cynicism. In it. And I guess my question to you is, how do you break the cynicism? You know, I don't know. I just know there's a lot of things in people's heads. Um, Everything from paramedics don't diagnose to, um, you know, we can't learn other things to, I mean, there, there's so much stuff, um, so much pathology that people have gotten put in their heads that it's almost like we can't fix this generation. Um, we have to start with the next generation and make them understand that, you know, Medicaid and Medicare do not support an EMS system and they're not supposed to, they're not designed to. And so you cannot run an EMS system just based upon billing revenue. 
That's not the way to do it, and you can't do it. Um, you know, we have to get people to understand that certification and licensure are just words that mean literally the same thing in most, when it comes to state, the state permission to practice. There's no difference between a certification and a license in, if they're given to you by the state. When the state gives you permission to practice, it's a license no matter what they call it. Um, nurses are not licensed. Nurses are registered. Teachers are certified. You know, no one acts like a teacher is somehow a second-class citizen because they're certified and not quote-unquote licensed. Great point. Can't argue that. Um, and I've heard, I've had this too, you know, like this, it's a certification. Well, it's not a license because it doesn't come on the right paper. I mean, there's some really ludicrous um, ideas out there. And, you know, I think where we need to start is just by things like this, like breaking down barriers, like, hey, you know, this is what you are. You're a licensed professional. Dan, you know, I've been trying. I spent three years trying. <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, I hear you. It's, um, you yeah. Know, I do think that's the biggest pathology. Um, I think the biggest problem is us. I think the second biggest problem is that there's a very real reluctance to, to do something in, in government. Like, Revising the regulations that have been in New Jersey in place since the 80s, um, I spent three years trying to get those regulations revised, and I just wasn't able to get traction in the department for a variety of reasons. Um, and the problem is, is that until that changes, the only way to really change the regulatory structure is through legislation, which is usually harder, but perhaps in New Jersey might be the only way to get things to change. Yeah, that that's an interesting point. Um, you know, and I, I was going to talk to you a little about interacting with regulatory agencies and, and what should, what's your vision? What should they be doing for you? And what should you be doing for them? Um, you know, people who don't understand, you know, people from other play areas that listen to us, um, they kind of think New Jersey is a little weird. And let's be honest. <laughs> Let's be New honest. Jersey is a little weird. We are, but but strangely enough, it works. Um, mm -hmm. it, it does work for the most part. People don't understand. Like, wait a minute, you have two paramedics in a suburban, and then four, five, six people come on an ambulance, and you know they they don't get it because again, it's you've seen one system, you've seen one system. But the uh, thing that, the thing that gets me, Dan, is I don't understand how unless you're going to have uh, the paramedics working with a field training officer for at least two or three years full-time, how do you take a minimally competent clinician and put them out by themselves to provide care, which is what's done everywhere else? Yeah, um, I, I agree. I think, you know, that is, you wouldn't do it to a brand new doctor. You certainly don't do it to a brand new nurse, not to a brand new teacher. Um, I can't tell a profession. I mean, do they do that in law? I mean, you're also an attorney. I mean, not really, not really. You usually go work for a firm, and then you have a supervising attorney. Who yeah, what you do for at least a year, right? That would that would make sense to me. I mean, you're you're doing important work. You you want to make sure, you know, like a an auto mechanic doesn't just they don't just give them a set of tools and say, hey, go no. on out and do stuff. You know, going out going out by yourself and do stuff where you can't consult with somebody else. Like if you're a Correct. mechanic in a garage where there's four other mechanics working next to you, okay, you can work by yourself and ask them questions. But we don't have that environment. You're working by yourself 
making your own decisions. And that scares the hell out of me. Um, you know, I, New York, outside of New York City, has that in places. And if you're a new medic, you've got no way to learn. So you're going to be a minimally competent medic literally your entire career because you're going to have nobody to model yourself after because you get thrown out there by yourself. Yeah, and, and I think that's a, that's a real big issue for a lot of parts of the country is that, you know, you get put on a truck as a brand new paramedic with an EMT who may or may not be experienced, may not may or may not have the same levels of knowledge that their that their level of uh, you know licensure would give them. And you know, it I mean, it's amazing. Like and the evidence bears this out. Um you know, there's evidence that, you know, two pilots in an aircraft is inherently much safer. Two pilots in a helicopter, inherently much safer. And, you know, when it comes to, you know, even the fire service, two in, two out, they they won't go in without somebody anymore. You right. know, it's like, but we're, you know, even in the police department, it's like, you know, you go on a call, you know, yeah, you've got backup, you know. Yeah. <laughs> we're the only we're the only profession that just takes our people and throws them out of the nest and says, "Well, hey, you know." <laughs> yeah. And you know, in other places, you know, it's a, it can be a mixed bag in other places too because you could have multiple agencies re responding with paramedics, but at the same time, that's not the same thing as being with somebody twelve hours a day, where you can learn from them um, and be engaged in a conscious, deliberative practice. Um, where you're following up on all your patients, where you're learning from your partner. Um, just being there with another medic on the scene for 15 minutes is not the same thing as being in a partnered learning environment. Yeah, I think I would agree with that. Uh, absolutely. I, I think, you know, the more, you know, I think there's a sweet spot. I think, you know, everybody's a paramedic probably doesn't work well. Uh, one paramedic and... Everybody else, not a paramedic, probably doesn't work well. I think there's a sweet spot. You know, I would okay. say two to three on a call makes it really work smoothly. You know, this, you know, the New Jersey system has been this way for a long time. And there's a very specific reasons why it was like this. They did a study in 79 that said the two paramedics were the, were the best model. And the non-transport uh, methodology was the model to get high exposure and low low acuity, you know to minimize the low acuity volume they're doing um and i still think 40 years later it's the right model uh we want high volume high experience paramedics who spend two or three years learning from their partner how to be a really good clinician 90 percent of the time i don't necessarily think there's a need for a second clinician but 10 percent of the time there is um, and there's a lot of reasons fatigue difficult diagnosis crashing skills into a shorter time frame there's a lot of reasons for that second medic and the cost differential is not huge for the value you get out of it. So I, I think that the New Jersey model actually is the model that does make the most sense clinically for people. Yeah. And I think, I think if you look around to the systems that do ride with two paramedics, um, you know, I, that follow that kind of idea, you get a lot of, you get a lot of decent a, uh, agencies and services that do good work. Um, Austin, Travis County in Texas is one we talk about a lot. Austin um, EMS? What's that? 
Boston EMS, Orange County, California, New York City. I, I was stunned at the amount of paramedic units, actual ALS units that Boston has in the city at any one time. It, it, yeah. It's like a ridiculously low number. And, and it's always been that way. It used to be worse. And they explain, but they've explained it that they've empowered their their BLS clinicians mm -hmm. to really handle almost everything except for what a paramedic absolutely needs to be there for. Well, one of the other things in Boston that's real specific is that probably a third of their EMTs are actually medics, and they have to wait years to get upgraded okay. to a medic spot. So they'll work like part time at a private or in another service. And their days off, but because Boston EMS has decent benefits and pays well and it's a good place to work, they'll go there and they'll wait to do it. Stanford, Connecticut EMS used to be just like that, where you couldn't be a medic there to had spent a year as a medic in another high volume system. So hmm. even if, if you had worked for Stanford EMS as an EMT or as an intermediate and you became a paramedic, you actually had to leave and come back um, to take a medic's position. They changed that now, but that's the way it was 20 years ago. Yeah, and Seattle, and people talk about Seattle Fire King, you know, in the King County system, and and it's very similar. I mean, they don't take outside paramedics. Like you, literally, go back to their school and you learn yeah. it their way. Um, paramedic. Well, before, you, before you tout King County, though, this is something I always tell people, and everybody has never heard this before. You know that? Okay, so in King County, you'll get the local fire department BLS. You get the King County paramedics, and then about a third of their patients to a half of their patients are transported by an AMR ambulance. So you're paying your local tax for the, for the fire department, for the local BLS to show up. You're paying your county tax, which includes your Medic 1 assessment, and then you get a $2,000 bill from AMR when AMR transports about a third to a half of the patients, ALS patients, in their system. And no one knows that because no one reads their annual report. But okay. if you read their annual report and you, you go through all the details, you'll see a crazy amount of their transports are done by AMR. That's amazing. I didn't know that. I didn't it's, know that. It's, it's, uh, it, it's a very, it has a very high degree of clinical quality, but the costs for that system are astronomical. Okay. Um, and again, like I said, one EMS system, you've seen one EMS system, and yeah. there's a happy medium somewhere. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I don't understand why the fire guys can't transport. It's probably a whole cultural thing. I don't I, I don't know. It's fine. <laughs> <laughs> Go look at that report and see that stat, because I, I just looked it up about a month ago again, because it's every year. But go look it up and see if, see, see if that makes sense to you. And there must be, like I said, I don't know the reasons why, but I feel like that's an awfully weird number. Yeah, that is a weird number. So I'm gonna I'm gonna play a little thought game with you. Um, okay. What do you What do you see as the three biggest challenges coming into the next twenty years of this profession? The three biggest challenges. I think one of them is going to definitely be um, finances because, um, as somebody said the other day, this was a great quote. I'm not going to get it completely right that the uh, you know, EMS is paid to transport and you get the care for free. Um, yeah, I'd agree with that. And so we have to break that paradigm, and there's literally nobody who's even trying to break the paradigm. You know, when you ask the question about, so if Medicaid and Medicare don't pay enough to cover the costs, 
why aren't we storming, you know, circling the state house, arguing for uh, a payment system that covers the cost of providing services? And every medic in EMT just sort of gives me that look of, oh, God, Scott, another one of your crazy ideas. But, you know, if you're not willing to give me your iPhone for 100 bucks, um, why should we be responding to ambulance calls and getting paid 100 bucks from Medicaid for it? Yeah, and I, I think I think we're at the point now, and and there's been rumblings of this. We we have things that we can prove where EMS, ALS care, BLS care actually does make a difference in patient acuity, length of stay, ER throughput, um, all of these things, and we're still not jumping on this as you know as a profession. Like, hey, we should be measuring this. This is how we prove our work. I would be even more radical than you. I, I agree with you on, on what you said, but I would make a stronger argument that um, somehow we've been sold a bill of goods that when we go and we have a patient, that somehow hospitals have some claim on that patient because that patient is in their catchment area, quote unquote. Um, no one in EMS ever says that, no, 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 back up. That's our patient. And we will decide where this patient goes. And it's not up to the hospital to decide. It's up to us. So I've worked in systems where you, when you have a patient who has a specialty need, you take them to a specialty referral hospital. When you have a patient who has a preference, um, they've been seen at Hospital X or that's where their doctor is, we can take them to X hospital. But that still leaves 30 to 50% of patients for whom we should be determining their destination. And there's a value to that. And I think that, listen, everybody has their preferences about hospital X or hospital Y in your system. Um, but honestly, there probably isn't a huge gap in care between hospital X and hospital Y for something pretty generic. So why aren't we able to leverage that to get more value out of the system? Why aren't we, the same way a cardiology group or an orthopedic group or a neurology practice group gets a, uh, a piece of the pie and gets treated very specifically when they admit a patient from their practice to this hospital, um, how come EMS isn't getting the same piece of the pie when we bring in more cardiology patients than the largest cardiology groups, we bring in more neurology patients than the largest neurology groups, we bring in more orthopedic patients than the largest orthopedic groups. Why are we uh, told consistently that we don't control the patient when literally we have physical control of the patient? It's a great, yeah, it's great. This is, you know, I, I don't think there's a conspiracy against EMS, but a lot of times I feel like there's a conspiracy against EMS. We're asked I care for less than the cost of doing business. We're told that uh, we're technicians, we don't diagnose, uh, that we can't you know, learn more skills like nurses do, that um, the patient isn't our patient, that hospitals have some inherent right to the patient, that even if we improve efficiencies, even if we get the, that ICU bed emptied quicker, the value proposition for that, all, all that value goes to the hospital, not to the ambulance provider. I feel like I don't think there's a conspiracy against us. I don't. But I feel like describing it as a conspiracy 
is the best way to convey it when literally there's 10 to 15 different specific points that show how we're getting the short end of the stick without any pushback from us. Well, that was a big number one. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's number one. But, I mean, there's other big issues. I mean, education is a big issue. Um, you know, there's a, there's a tension between um, paramedic certificate programs, which, uh, which is what I went through and what you went through, probably. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, both of which, you know, the good parts about certificate programs is that they allow you to start working within a year and a half. Um, start earning money, and then I worked my way through my bachelor's degree, right? I think you did too. Yeah. Uh, so you're allowed to earn more. You're allowed to get more pension credit. If you're in a system where you have a pension, you're allowed to contribute more to your 401k because you're, quote-unquote, earning while you're learning. Um, but the problem is is that with a certificate program, the the degree is not has not been structured to be very portable. So there's not other things you can go and do. I, I actually, ten more than 10 years ago, published a paper, um, I think in, uh, in EMS Magazine, that basically said we would have been better off without paramedics with just mobile intensive care nurses because then we could have transitioned to other things much more easily. Um, I still think we could transfer to other things more easily if we could start saying out loud that we're capable of learning other things and pushing that point more. Um, I think we're going to end up in a bachelor's degree model really soon because at 48 credits, with, mo with most associate degrees capped at 60 credits, um, yeah. we're really pushing that barrier now. So right just this past week, um, there was a college out west that just started a clinical bachelor's program in paramedicine, um, uh, which I think is the future. Um, I, think, I think paramedic education will be a bachelor's degree because at 48, let's you know, bump it up to 51 to 54 credits, it just breaks the associate degree model because we have no three-year associate degree models here in the United States. So what, um, what does that do you, for EMTs? Um, I think you could make an argument that the uh, advanced EMT uh, curricula with some add-ons like defensive driving and hazmat operations, hazmat tech, I think that fits much better into the associate degree model. Um, and then you could have the paramedic portion of the education be the bachelor's model. And that's what you end up having in many other uh, Anglo countries. Um, the important thing to remember is that when they talk about a bachelor's degree in the UK or Australia, that's a three-year degree, not a four-year degree. So they're three-year degree model is how they educate their paramedics, which is where we are, too. They're learning the same things our medics are. They use exactly the same textbooks. Um, so the, and they don't do things that are very different. But they are able to say they have a bachelor's degree, and we can't because their, model, their bachelor's model is structured differently. But I think that's going to change here. But the problem is, as an educator, that... Because paramedic education has been structured as in the associate model, what happens is that the courses are structured as lower-level classes, which they're not. They're not entry-level courses. They're actually capstone courses. So what happens is, is you have to go and figure out how to get them reclassified as upper-level education content. And places like Hartford Hospital have done that successfully. 
But the problem of switching models in many parts of the country, that's going to be the drawback. Yeah, and there's going to probably be pushback from some of the agencies and departments that are already providing it saying, well, our guys already do this stuff. Why do they need this? Yeah. And, it, you know, listen, I, I'm always a believer. You grandfather the existing clinicians in and you require all the new people to meet the standard. And that's an easy way to do it. It's the easiest way to get the least pushback. But you still get pushback. Yeah, it, it is interesting that we get pushback on that. Um, let's let's on the, on the education model, um, you know, the, the, the pandemic's really kind of thrown education, continuing education for a loop. Um, really? I actually just took a whole day of continuing education from the University of Cincinnati last week. Well, that's that's where I'm going with this. Do you, uh, in the future with the with this, do you think that the online model and the you know the the this online way of getting Con Ed is have we open have has the door been finally opened that you're not going to be able to close that um, because there's varying degrees of resistance to that stuff and. I've never understood why, because I, I too, I just went to a uh, online conference that was over um, Zoom. Um, a lot of top shelf people were on it, um, you know, people in the FOMED world. And I got to tell you, the, the information I got from there was just as good as I would have been had I driven four hours someplace and sat in an auditorium and probably better. Um, but people still have hangups about this, that this is somehow not the same education as you would get from sitting in a classroom. Uh, you get a lot of pushback, especially at the regulatory level that, you know, uh, it needs to be this, you need to have this. And yeah, look, I, my, my belief is you're always going to find people who are going to game the system, but for the vast majority of people, this is a viable alternative. Is this, is this where we need to go? I will take this, Pause for a minute and say that I'm. This might die in this device because it's down to five percent. Okay. But I could switch devices. That's no big deal. Okay. I just didn't want to have you guys get cut off all of a sudden and not know why. No, that's fine. Um, so the truth is, the big problem is trying to figure out whether uh, that content was actually uh, consumed. Right. So if it was up to me. Uh, I wouldn't focus on relearning the things you've already learned. I would focus on, you know, the annals of emergency medicine and pre-hospital emergency care and the Canadian emergency medical journals um, all have a podcast. And that's where the most valuable content I regularly am exposed to comes from. But we, we didn't, I couldn't figure out a way to give CME for that because there was no mechanism for validation. And that's the problem because that's the way the state works. Now, the way the way lawyers do it and uh, the way physicians do it is sometimes the CME is recorded or the CLE is recorded, but there's like an interstitial word that you have to write down to prove you listen to it. Uh, in New Jersey, one of the ways we wanted to do it was to have it go through our own app. Um, so if it was streamed through our own app, we could prove that it was listened to at least um, and where it was that you listened to it. Um, but we never got that done. You know, the problem with uh, state government sometimes is that um, the technology, the ability to manage technology that you deal with every day um, 
just isn't necessarily there in government. So while I could come up with a bunch of apps which could stream content through a player, I know it's perfectly capable. There's, there's a way to do this mm-hmm. to show that it was seen and take a snapshot of you and, you know, whatever, show where it was, re- where it was played. Um, it was bandwidth that we just didn't have the ability to commit to it because literally we had 15 people trying to manage the, you know, 32,000 clinicians, 3,000 vehicles, um, 60 education institutions, like we're managing a huge amount of stuff and the ability to start something new, even if it's going to make your life easier in the long run, um, sometimes that, that, that hump to get over it is, is hard. Um, and that's a shame because everybody would benefit in the long run, but it, it's just sort of it, if the industry was more DIY, if in New Jersey we have an association of paramedic programs, if NJAP had put out an app which we could stream uh, ASAP Frontline through their app and it would record the CME, that would be great. Um, and we'd probably accept that. But the problem is waiting for the state to do something isn't going to be super successful just because of all the, the weird barriers. And what's funny, and this is sad, but funny, is that money was never the issue. We always had the money to do things. We just didn't have the bandwidth to do things. And sometimes there was projects that we wanted to get done that would get stuck in contracting for like a year. I never got through. So we wanted to um, have a, we wanted to approve a statewide pilot of using um a communications tool, there's actually a number of them out there which allow you to communicate with the ER. And we wanted to institute that because it would allow the clinician to communicate with the hospital in a different way. There's a bunch of benefits to it. It shortens the time for appropriate stroke care. It shortens the time for appropriate cardiac care. Um, There's a lot of benefits to the measurement part of it as well. And then we couldn't get it through contracting in time. And so literally our clock ran out on the money. Wow. And that's the problem that we have. I mean, government is super inefficient because of how it's designed. So if I'm reading you correctly, is the answer that at a grassroots level, get an organization or, you know, like for New Jersey, we do have an association of paramedic programs. Uh, EMTs have uh, the New Jersey EMS Council if you're a volunteer. Um, And then you get that idea and you put it together and then you bring it to the agency and say, Hey, look, here's how this is going to work. It's great. We just need you to get behind this and let us run with it. I think if you, if you had an idea, um, and you can, you can make it work. Uh, first of all, I'm not even sure I'd ask beforehand. I might, but I'm not sure I would. Um, I think there's a lot to be said for this just works. Um, for instance, in New Jersey, the volunteer, uh, New Jersey State for State Council, which represents a lot of the volunteer organizations, not all, but a lot, um, their conference is approved for CME, which the state underwrites some of the funding for that. Um, and so they've had that relationship for a long time because it was an easy way for EMTs to maintain their continuing education in a way that many of them did. Um, and I think that you can make an argument that you, the question is, do you want roadblocks put in your way up front or do you want roadblocks put in your way at the end? Um, 
there's benefits to doing it both ways, but I think that a lot of times I'd rather have a system that's up and running and functional and then propose it and have them say you have to change X, Y, and Z rather than having them say throughout the process, oh, wait, you have to change this. Oh, wait, you have to change this. Because as someone who's been a government contractor before, one of the biggest mistakes you make as a rookie uh, consultant to government is not including the price of changes in the contract because government will change their mind every 10 minutes if there's no cost associated. If there's a cost associated, they still will change their mind every 10 minutes, but you won't feel as bad about it because they'll be paying you for it. Okay. Makes sense. So, yeah, and, and we've been we've been at this a, a while, so we're going to obviously we want you to have you on more than once. So, uh, well, we'll, you know, we'll come up on and out uh, pretty soon. But just to leave everybody with, like I said, this we just finished EMS week and we did the same old thing, the same old way, the same time that we've done it every other time for the people. What if there's a group of people out there that want to change things, that they want to push things through, they want to start making a difference? How, how would you engage? Where do you think we need to engage? Do we need to engage at the regulatory level? Do we need to engage at the legislative level? I guess go back in the past. How did Jim Page do it? How did, you know, how do we do it? How does the new generation grab what they deserve? I think probably the biggest way is to engage with your legislators. They want to hear from you. And that was always one of the more amazing things to me is you have to really push people to contact their state assemblymen and their state senators about getting change done. Like they literally work for you. And if you don't ask for something to change and, and listen, Asking once doesn't necessarily mean it's going to change. Most bills have to be introduced seven times before they actually pass. Um, but if you don't engage with them and tell them what you want, you're certainly not going to get it. Um, it's the same way in any relationship, right? You have to tell people what you want um, before they can either give it to you or not give it to you. But if they don't know what you want, you're not going to get anything. And, and that's, that's a really important way to do it. Having... Having it to be re having it be reasonably organized and having a reasonably coherent elevator pitch to these people um, is also important. But but trust me, they do listen to you, and they will push forward the things that you think are important um, if you make a good argument for it. And listen, I, I know this sounds stupid, but people do respect EMPs and paramedics, and people do think that this job is important. And it's easy to be cynical when you work in the field, um, but if you ask your, you know, your next door neighbor, or you ask your, your grandpa, or you ask you know, the people, not people you work with, but the, you know, the, the parents of the people your kids go to school with, is, is being a paramedic an important job? And are you willing to help pay for it in your community? The answer will almost always be yes, because they know it's an important job. But we don't discuss it like that. And we're not out in front. And I think that's the problem is ours. It's not theirs. It's ours for not being more assertive. I never understand when there uh, is a horrible car crash that it's the sheriff or the police chief or the state police talking to the media instead of the paramedic chief or the ambulance chief talking to the media. 
Because really, what did the cops do? But did the crash investigation keep you safe on the scene? Do the crash investigation and get the highway open. Um, we did all the work that involved sick people. So I don't understand why we don't put ourselves out there more. Is this is our expertise, and we we own this, and that's important. No, that's critically important, and that's what the other that's what the other public safety models do that we've never done historically. I mean, as you said, 174 years of tradition, nobody knows about. Nobody understands the mission. We don't share. We, we're not in the malls. We're not, a, you know, we're not taking blood pressures at the shopping malls. These things are all critically important. And, and I would like to see, I mean, my personal thing is, I, I want to see agencies, I, I don't want another water bottle. I, I don't. I don't want another phone charger. I'm just going to lose it anyway. I, I want us to commit to educating about our mission and to growing the profession. And I think if we get everybody behind that or we start getting a nucleus of people that are willing to make these phone calls or willing to knock on doors, I do believe, I agree with you, I do believe we can change the profession and move it forward beyond anybody's idea. I agree. I, you know, I'm, once again, I have to admit, I'm, I'm a little bit of a, uh, I come from a very specific environment from New Jersey, uh, where the rescue squads ran the ambulance and did all the rescue. When I grew up in Bridgewater, the fire department did not do rescue other than fire rescue. Rescue was a function of EMS. Mm-hmm. And so my attitude is that anything that involves people is our job not anybody else's job, and we should be the ones talking to the media about it afterwards. Um, but the problem with getting people to work together is that it's very hard to get EMTs and paramedics to actually spend the time to work together to get something done, which is kind of weird considering that I know literally thousands of career EMTs and paramedics and thousands of dedicated career volunteers as well. Um, people who have been volunteering for 20, 30, 40 years. But trying to get them to work together for something, for anything, is like creating cats. And I think that's just part of the makeup. But that was probably one of the more depressing things when I was in my previous state role, is I wanted to have a group I could give responsibility for for doing some pretty fundamental things and I couldn't get them to work together. Yeah, I know. Um, it was. It, it is disappointing. Um, and I. I think now. I think it's. I think it's about empowering and kind of motivating the younger generation. Um, I think maybe that's what our my role is. Hopefully, going out. You know, finishing up. I'm on the kind of on the tail end of this whole thing. <laughs> <laughs> Damn. Well, you know, than me, Dan. What do you mean you're on the tail end of it? Well, and that's another thing. You know, we can talk about that later on. I mean, but you know, it's going to come to an end someday. You want to leave it better than when you found it. Yeah, but I feel like you know, I'm I'm 52. I feel like I got another good 20 years in me. Come on, (laughs) you want to be riding an ambulance at 72? I don't want to be lifting anybody at 72, but <laughs> there's lots of other things to be doing. <laughs> All right. I'll grant you that. Maybe we'll, maybe we'll get that going. Um, so Scott, uh, this has been a really great conversation. We touched on a lot of uh, interesting stuff uh, coming off of EMS week. Like I said, I think this is going to be something that we're going to keep touching on and, and pushing forward. 
Um, and, you know, I want to thank you for being on, um, you know, I've gotten to work with you over the years and, uh, you know, the leadership you gave and the things that you've done. Um, and now going on, you're going to be running your own paramedic program, um, in Brooklyn, New York, and you're going to be next week. And I'm sure you're going to be incorporating all the history and, and all of this to your new students. And I think that's great. Yeah. One of the things, one of the things that both of, so I run the New York City Ambulance History page and, and the New Jersey Ambulance History page. Um, and for both of them, we're trying to get every one of the pre-1970 deaths um, enrolled into the National EMS Memorial. And we've already done, I think, 14, 13 or 14 um, of the deaths in New York City. And I think I have a list of about uh, another 15 pre-1970 deaths in New Jersey, which I also want to get enrolled into the National EMS Memorial. Um, not counting, of course, the ones, the 15 people who literally just passed in the past six months here um, from being exposed to COVID. But, um, you know, the goal of that is to make sure people remember that, you know, the brothers and sisters who came before us um, are not forgotten because, like you said, someday we're going to be old and not going to be here anymore. And it'd be nice to be remembered for the stuff we did as well. Um, and have people remember that there's a 150-year history of people providing care on the ambulance to people who had exactly the same problems 150 years ago, the asthmas, the traumas, the sick calls, as we do today. And I think that the, the sameness of it is, is actually something people have to keep in their head, that it, it, it's not something different. It's the same job. We might have some different tools and different skills, but you wouldn't, it, it's, if you went back 100 years, it, it, you'd be shocked at how exactly the same it was. It's just taking care of people in the end. Yeah. Caring for people and sometimes taking them to another place like the hospital. Not always. Sometimes. Sometimes. Yeah. Scott, thanks for coming on. We really appreciate it. Thank you very much for having me. Please. It was a lot of fun, and I'm happy to come back whenever you'll have me. That's good. We've got an open invite on the overrun, so uh, we'll hopefully we'll talk to you soon. Great. Thank you very much. Great. Thanks.